0: This hearing of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee will come to order. Um, thank you all for, for being here. It's nice to see the nominees and, and family members as well. That's always the best part. Uh, today we have ambassadorial nominees uh, for Benin, Togo, Central African Republic, Tunisia, and The Gambia. Uh, these are all important and challenging posts, uh, to, to put it mildly. Uh, I, I look forward to today's hearing from today's nominees about how diplomatic engagement can help build positive economic and political trends around in Benin and Togo and how to address ongoing challenges that we have in Tunisia, um, which is often said to be, as we spoke about yesterday, uh, the most successful democratic transition of those who, who were involved in the Arab Spring. If confirmed, the ambassador-designate will mark the return of the U.S. Ambassador to Benghazi following a two-year gap uh, that's uh, significant. I look forward to hearing how U.S. interests uh, including stability can be advanced in a complex environment, uh, certainly in Central Africa. Uh, and finally, the committee is eager to hear about the best way to go forward uh, in Gambia as well. I look forward uh, to, to all of you sharing your expertise. Uh, Senator Markey is voting and will uh, uh, come back here shortly, but we'll go ahead and get started. Uh, glad to have Senator Gardner here, and I know he has to leave uh, shortly, but appreciate his interest. First nominee, uh, Lucy Tamlin. Ms. Tamlin is a career Foreign Service officer with the Foreign Service uh, and currently serving as Director in the Office of the Special Envoy for Sudan and South Sudan. Ms. Tamlin has served a wide range of overseas positions, in a wide range of overseas positions, including Deputy Chief of Mission in Lisbon. Economic Counselor, our uh, Counselor at the uh, U.S. Mission in the OECD in Paris, Provincial Reconstruction Team Leader uh, in Iraq, and Ms. Tamlin also served as Deputy Chief of Mission in Chad. So glad to have you here. Our second nominee, David Gilmore. Mr. Gilmore is career Foreign Service Office Officer and currently serves as Deputy Assistant Secretary in the Bureau of, Bureau of African Affairs. Uh, previously, Mr. Gilmore led the Africa Bureau's Public Diplomacy Office. Mr. Gilmore's numerous overseas atti- assignments include Deputy Chief of Mission in uh, Panama City, Panama, and in Malawi as well. Jeffrey Hawkins, uh, our third nominee today, he is a career member of the Foreign Service also. Uh, most recently, uh, Consul uh, General in Lagos, uh, Nigeria also. Um, prior to that assignment, he was Director of the South and Central Asian Affairs Office in the Bureau, uh, Bureau of Democracy, Human Rights, and Labor. Served Um, uh, in a number of overseas assignments, as you all have, including uh, Deputy Chief of Mission in Angola, uh, Brunei, and Political Economic Chief, uh, the U.S. Embassy in Kabul, Afghanistan. Uh, Daniel Rubenstein, uh, career Foreign Service uh, officer as well, most recently served Special Envoy uh, for Syria, a place without any problems at all. So (laughs) thank you for your service there. That's a position he's held uh, since 2014. Previously, he served as Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary of State in the Bureau of Intelligence and Research. Mr. Rubenstein's uh, overseas uh, leadership positions include serving as Consul General in Jerusalem, Chief of the Civilian Observer Unit in the Sinai in, Pene- in uh, Egypt, and Deputy Chief of Mission in Amman, Jordan. Also served as Director of the Office of Israel uh, and Palestinian Affairs. Finally, uh, we have Carolyn uh, Patricia Alsop, a career member of the Foreign Service. Ms. Alsop also served recently as Deputy Chief of Mission in Ghana, uh, previously led the Office of Central uh, African Affairs, and Deputy Chief of Mission in the Gambia. So this will be a return trip for you if, if nominated or if uh, confirmed. Ms. Alsop also held a number of, econ- of positions in economic affairs at the State Department, including uh, serving as Executive Assistant of the Economic Bureau and Special Assistant in the Office of the Undersecretary of Economics, Business and Agricultural Affairs. Thank you all for being here and uh, appreciate the service and meeting with you. Um, before I, I'm just amazed at uh, uh, the sacrifices that you made and that your families have made as well. appreciate having family members here. I hope that you'll introduce them uh, as you uh, begin your remarks and we'll recognize uh, Lucy Tamlin first. So,
1: Thank you. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, it's a great honor for me to appear before you today. I'm grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the confidence they have placed in me as their nominee for ambassador to the Republic of Benin. My husband, George Serpa, is here today representing many far-flung family members, especially our children, Ben and Philippa. Unexpected evacuations and long separations haven't dampened their enthusiasm or the pride they take in being part of the Foreign Service family. And I know I couldn't have come this far without their support. I joined the Foreign Service in 1982, and have served in positions of increasing responsibility across three continents, including three assignments with the Bureau of African Affairs. Working alongside of and learning from extraordinary colleagues and leaders in the State Department, I've gained the experience and understanding which, if confirmed, will enable me to faithfully represent and advance UN int- U.S. interests in Benin. Mr. Chairman, Benin is a strong partner of the United States. The people of Benin are justly proud of their democratic traditions and record of peaceful transfers of power. President Thomas boni Yayi, serving his second and final five-year term, was invited by President Obama in 2011 to the White House as one of four African presidents representing Africa's democratic progress, which, as President Obama stated at that time, is vital to a stable and prosperous Africa and also critical to the stability and prosperity of the world. With 50% of the Beninese population under 18 years of age, Benin is a vibrant and dynamic nation rich in culture, history, and potential. We partner with the government of Benin to provide a helping hand to support the inclusive economic growth which is the centerpiece of the country's own poverty reduction strategy, and which will enable the people of Benin to achieve a better future for themselves and their families. Our largest assistance program targets malaria, a disease which is particularly deadly for the young and which takes an enormous economic toll on the economy. Benin is on track to receive a second Millennium Challenge compact, a reflection of its ability to sustain high rankings in the MCC's political, economic, and social indicators and to muster the political will to address shortcomings when those rankings slip. U.S. investment in Benin through the Millennium Challenge account will help address energy shortfalls, which are a serious impediment to economic growth. Benin is a strong regional partner on other fronts. It has stood with its neighbors to confront the horrors of Boko Haram and is a member of the Lake Chad Basin Multinational Joint Task Force, to which it has pledged a battalion. The government partners with United States and other international donors to combat drug trafficking, piracy, and maritime crime. Our shared human rights values are reflected in the stands that Benin takes in international fora and its multiple contributions to peacekeeping operations worldwide, including in Cote d'Ivoire, Mali, and the Democratic Republic of the Congo. But challenges remain internally and externally for Benin. Robust economic growth is essential to meet the needs of the people, but despite considerable efforts on the part of President Yai's government, Extreme poverty and corruption remain serious obstacles to achieving development goals. The country is vulnerable to economic shocks, particularly emanating from larger economies in the region. Transnational organized crime can flourish where borders are porous and thinly surveilled and where corruption corrodes the rule of law. And finally, extremist violence threatens Benin's near neighbors, where perpetrators of such violence find recruits in disenfranchised and vulnerable communities. My priorities, if confirmed, will be to identify those areas where U.S. partnership can assist the government and the people of Benin continue as a beacon of democracy, stability, peace, and tolerance in the region. I will seek to further strengthen the ties of friendship and understanding with the people of Benin, and I'll look for ways to advance U.S. interests for the benefit of the American people through a partnership with Benin which bolsters the fight against transnational organized crime and enables us to stand together for shared values internationally. Benin has welcomed more than 2,000 Peace Corps volunteers over the years, and in the truest spirit of partnership, these volunteers have given much and received much from the host communities in which they worked. Kate Pusey was one such volunteer whose life was tragically cut short, but whose memory very much endures. If confirmed, one of my highest priorities will be to continue to work with the government of Benin for justice for Kate Pusey and her family. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, for the opportunity to address you today. I'm very happy to take any questions which you may have.
0: Thank you. Mr. Gilmore.
2: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Uh, and I have submitted a longer version of my statement for the record. Uh, Mr. Chairman, I'm honored to appear before you today and grateful to President Obama and Secretary Kerry for the confidence that they have placed in me as their nominee for Ambassador to Togo. I'm also grateful for the support of Assistant Secretary of State for African Affairs, Linda Thomas-Greenfield. I'm joined today by my wife, Judith Martin, who has spent a lifetime in the Foreign Service, first with her father, S. Douglas Martin, a career State Department officer, and her mother, Pauline, and later as my cherished partner as we traveled the world and raised our family in eight overseas posts and in Washington during my 29 years in the Foreign Service. Also, here is our son, Tristan. Our other two children, Miles and Skyler, are watching online from Texas. I'd also like to acknowledge my father, John Gilmore, who could not be here today. He worked for 34 years in local government, proudly serving the citizens of the small town in Michigan where I grew up. Everything I know about integrity, treating people with respect, and dedication to public service, I learned from my dad. Mr. Chairman, I believe my service in four African posts and in senior positions in Washington, as well as postings elsewhere in the world, including as Deputy Chief of Mission in Panama, have prepared me for this assignment. If confirmed, I will draw upon these experiences to advance U.S. interests in Togo and the West African region. The United States and Togo enjoy a strong relationship and broad mutual interests. Togo lies at the heart of West Africa, a region that is important to the security of the United States and to which the United States has longstanding economic and cultural ties. Mr. Chairman, our policy priorities in Togo are to safeguard the welfare of American citizens, promote democracy and good governance, improve maritime security in the Gulf of Guinea, promote human rights, combat transnational crime, advance commercial opportunities for U.S. business, and improve the quality of healthcare and education. Togo is recovering from 15 years of political and economic isolation that began in the early 1990s due to political instability. The country's long cycle of decline ended in 2007 following largely free and fair legislative elections. The political situation has stabilized over the past few years and successive elections were recognized by the international community as free and fair despite some shortfalls. Most recently presidential elections in April of this year were judged credible by international observers and the United States congratulated the people of Togo for exercising their democratic rights. The country is presently at peace. Should I be confirmed, I will work to maintain a peaceful, transparent and fair political climate, thereby consolidating and expanding on the democratic gains of the past several years. Togo has been a willing partner in advancing security in West Africa and beyond. And if confirmed, I look forward to helping enhance Togo's ability to police and regulate the Gulf of Guinea and to expand their capacity to train and deploy peacekeepers, as they have successfully done in Mali, Darfur, Cote d'Ivoire, and many other conflicts. If confirmed, I will strongly support Togo's efforts to address the challenges of corruption, wildlife trafficking, smuggling, trafficking in persons, which also threaten the national interests of the United States. The government of Togo recognizes that improving the investment climate is key to sustained economic growth and eliminating poverty. If confirmed, I will support reforms that promote investment and provide opportunities for American companies. I will work to strengthen Togo's developing role as a regional trade and transportation hub and encourage Togolese entrepreneurs to take full advantage of the opportunities provided by AGOA. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for this opportunity to address you. And if confirmed, I look forward to working with you and representing the interests of the American people in Togo. And I'm happy to answer any questions. Thank you.
3: Thank
0: you. Thank you. Mr. Hawkins.
3: Thank you, Mr. Chairman. I am honored to appear before you today as the President's nominee. Uh, to be the next ambassador of the United States to the Central African Republic. I thank President Obama and Secretary Kerry for entrusting me with this important responsibility. If confirmed, I will work with Congress to advance the interests of the United States in the Central African Republic. Joining me here today is my wife, Annie, right there, Uh, and I am deeply grateful to Annie and to our small children, Max and Alex for allowing me this opportunity to serve my country, despite the hardships and sacrifices that it will require of them. Mr. Chairman, the Central African Republic, a Texas-sized nation in the heart of Africa, is blessed with an abundance of natural resources and a resilient and entrepreneurial people. Sadly, however, cycles of conflict have roiled that nation for decades. Beginning in late 2012, the Central African Republic saw its latest, and certainly its worst, such cycle. Conflict left thousands dead, and hundreds of thousands displaced. Armed factions, including foreign groups like the heinous Lord's Resistance Army, controlled large swathes of its territory. The picture, frankly, was bleak. Mr. Chairman, a transitional government with strong support from the international community and from the United States government, is taking the first difficult steps towards peace. If confirmed, my primary objective will be to support this process. We have a strong interest in CAR's success. A successful transition will help forestall a return to anarchy and atrocities on victim populations. A successful transition will also assist in preventing extremists and trafficking groups from using the country's ungoverned spaces for their own nefarious purposes. Finally, it will also aid in reducing regional instability. The people of the Central African Republic are clearly ready for a new beginning. Earlier this year, they gathered together in grassroots consultations to speak about their hopes for their nation's future armed groups agreed to halt the use of child soldiers and committed to stopping violent conflict. The country's political transition will culminate later this year with a constitutional referendum and elections. The international community provides key support to this process. In particular, the UN Multidimensional Integrated Stabilization Mission in Central African Republic, MINUSCA, has operated in the country since September of 2014. Nearly 10,000 UN peacekeepers and some 900 French troops support, uh, provide the security backbone for this deployment. The United States has made a real commitment to the positive change we are beginning to see in the Central African Republic. Over the past two years, we have contributed some $800 million to assist at-risk populations underwrite the UN effort, reform the justice sector, aid the electoral process, and encourage peace building and reconciliation. In September of last year, with the support of Congress, we reopened our embassy after nearly two years of closure. Mr. Chairman, we may not have a better opportunity to break the cycles of conflict in CAR. If confirmed as ambassador, I will ensure that US resources are used appropriately I believe my deep experience in Africa, years working in post-conflict environments like Afghanistan, and strong Foreign Service leadership credentials will be useful in promoting U.S. government interests there. Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I thank you for this opportunity to appear before you today and welcome any questions you might have.
0: Thank you. Mr. Rubenstein.
4: Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, I am honored to appear before you as President Obama's nominee to be the next ambassador to the Republic of Tunisia. I would also like to thank Secretary Kerry for placing his trust in me to manage the relationship with this important partner and recently designated major non-NATO ally. Before I begin, I'd also like to take a moment to recognize and thank my family, my wife Julie, and our children Jonah and Simon. They have provided unconditional love and constant support throughout my career. Mr. Chairman, I have had the honor of serving as a Foreign Service Officer for the last 26 years, much of it in the Middle East, including one year in Tunisia. My previous assignments have provided me with an extensive background in economic and counterterrorism issues that are critical to our partnership with Tunisia. While my time in Tunisia was before the 2011 revolution, I maintain an abiding respect and admiration for the country, its culture, and its people. And if confirmed as U.S. Ambassador to Tunisia, I pledge to work with my colleagues in the executive and the legislative branches of our government to advance our national interests and deepen this partnership. During President Qaed Issebsi's visit to Washington in May, President Obama affirmed the enduring partnership between the United States and Tunisia based on both mutual interests and shared values. Tunisia's democratic progress is an important counterpoint to those who assert that Islam and the Arab world are somehow incompatible with democracy. Chairman Flake, let me assure you that during these challenging times, I am deeply cognizant that the number one priority of an ambassador is the safety of Americans abroad. If confirmed, I assure you that I will carefully monitor the security environment as I seek to advance our diplomatic objectives with no higher responsibility than ensuring that the security of all U.S. citizens in Tunisia and all personnel under my charge. In addition to keeping this commitment in mind, I will also continue to be mindful that this is a critical time in our engagement with Tunisia. Since the 2011 revolution, Tunisia has taken remarkable and inspiring steps to build an accountable and representative democracy. But despite historic and legislative and presidential elections in 2014, the democratic transition and the country's security remain fragile. In recent months, Tunisia has endured two horrific terrorist attacks that threaten the progress so many Tunisians have fought for since Mohamed Bouazizi set himself alight in Sidi Bouzid and thus sparked the Arab Spring. Those vile attacks on innocent tourists and Tunisian citizens underline the enormous security challenges facing Tunisia. The reasons for radicalization are many, but what is clear is that high levels of youth unemployment Feelings of marginalization and instability in Libya are exploited by those who wish to undercut Tunisia's progress in the name of radicalism and barbaric violence. If confirmed, I will work with my colleagues across the U.S. government to direct resources to increasing the capacity of Tunisian security forces to address and degrade the threats posed by groups like AQIM, Ansara Sharia Tunisia, and ISIL, which has claimed responsibility for the Bardo Museum and Seuss attacks. Tunisia's security services have made commendable progress in dealing with dangerous extremists, but more needs to be done. In the wake of the attacks, the Tunisians have asked for continued support for their military and internal security forces to include increased information sharing, equipment and training to effectively identify threats and subvert efforts of violent extremist groups. And if confirmed, I will continue these endeavors and I will also support reforms to Tunisia's judicial prison, and police forces to help make them more professional institutions that are more responsive and accountable to their public. And while security support is critical, Mr. Chairman, the United States must also help strengthen Tunisia's economy in order to address some of the root causes contributing to the rise of extremist violence. If confirmed, I will work closely with the government of Tunisia in support of its economic reform agenda. I will also support the government and private sector's efforts to increase access to economic opportunities for all to include marginalized and economically disadvantaged populations. I firmly believe that we we cannot forget what makes Tunisia special, its democracy. Islamists, secularists, and many in between are working together daily to negotiate and seek consensus. Tunisia is the only Arab country ranked as free by Freedom House. The consolidation of democratic governance will take time and patience as Tunisia builds its institutions and works to ensure the freedoms guaranteed to Tunisia's citizens by their constitution. Tunisia's people expect transparency in government institutions and for government officials, security forces, and their private sector leaders to behave in ways that are not corrupt and that benefit the public. If confirmed, I will ensure the United States continues to promote reforms that will address issues of transparency and accountability and prioritizes the rights of the Tunisian people. If confirmed, Mr. Chairman, I will also pay close attention to the management of the embassy and its hardworking and dedicated personnel. And as our partnership with and assistance to Tunisia grows, I can assure you I will work to ensure we have adequate staff and resources to properly manage the many facets of this relationship. I thank you, Mr. Chairman, members of the committee, for the opportunity to testify before you. And I can assure you today that if confirmed, it will be my honor to further US interests and strengthen our relationship with Tunisia, and I look forward to the opportunity to welcome you in Tunisia if confirmed and work with you and your staffs to achieve those goals. Thank you very much.
0: Thank you. Ms. Alsa.
5: Mr. Chairman and members of the committee, I'm honored to appear before you today. I wish to express my gratitude to the President and Secretary of State for the trust and confidence they've placed in me as their nominee for Ambassador to the Republic of the Gambia. If confirmed, I would embrace the opportunity to apply my 23 years of experience as a Foreign Service Officer to advance U.S. priorities in the Gambia. I believe my previous experience as Deputy Chief of Mission in the Gambia from 2005 to 2007, and my most recent experience as Deputy Chief of Mission at our Embassy in Ghana would be particularly helpful in continuing to advocate for U.S. objectives in The Gambia. Throughout my Foreign Service career, I have relied on my ability to build and maintain a strong collaborative team with high morale and a clear sense of purpose to advance U.S. interests and objectives, whether it was promoting increased literacy, facilitating U.S. investment, encouraging entrepreneurship, advancing human rights, or supporting democratic institutions and free and fair elections. I believe I'm well prepared to assume the duties and responsibilities of U.S. Ambassador to the Gambia, and to deal with the many opportunities and challenges associated with that position. The United States and the Gambia share a long history dating back to the mid-1800s. The Gambia has a rich cultural heritage, perhaps made most famous in the United States by Alex Haley's novel, Roots, which still today brings many African Americans to the country on a journey to discover their heritage. The United States is committed to helping the Gambian people improve their lives by promoting democratic principles, human rights, and economic development. If confirmed, I will continue our efforts to engage the government of the Gambia on these core areas to accomplish our shared goal of greater prosperity for the Gambia and for the Gambian people. The Gambia is a troop contributing country for UN peacekeeping missions, including a substantial presence in Darfur, a very important contribution to international peace and security. But peace and security must start at home. The Gambia as a predominantly moderate Muslim country where people of different faiths have long lived together with little tension could could play an important role in promoting tolerance and countering violent extremism. However, the Gambia will not be able to play that role to the fullest without making changes at home. We remain deeply concerned about the downward trajectory of the Gambia's human rights record. Gambians are being arbitrarily arrested and detained for longer than the constitutionally mandated 72-hour period, and discriminatory legislation and verbal and physical abuse have been targeted against the LGBTI community. Furthermore, we still do not know the whereabouts of two missing dual Gambian-American citizens who were last seen in the Gambia over two years ago. Human rights is a cornerstone of US foreign policy. Respecting and upholding human rights is also a cornerstone of maintaining a just and peace society and mitigating the lure of violent extremism. In my career, I have found that when we as diplomats are open to dialogue, to listen and speak frankly, that we can make great strides in narrowing our differences on even the most contentious issues. If confirmed, I will seek regular dialogue with Gambian officials, political parties, civil society, journalists, youth, and women to emphasize the importance of respect for and protection of all human rights. Lastly, although the U.S. Embassy footprint in the Gambia is small, we are able to expand our reach through the 92 Peace Corps volunteers working in the education environment and health sectors. Peace Corps has been active in the Gambia since 1967 and has been warmly welcomed by the government and people of the Gambia. If confirmed, I would make my top concern the safety and security of the nearly 2,000 U.S. citizens in the Gambia, about half of whom are minors. Thank you, Mr. Chairman, for the opportunity to appear today. I would be pleased to respond to your questions.
0: Thank you, thank you all for your testimony. We've been joined by uh, Chris Murphy, uh, Senator from Connecticut. Thank you for being here. And uh, let me just start, a couple of questions. Ms. Tamlin, uh, how can uh, Benin take better advantage of AGOA um, and uh, uh, improve their economic performance? Is that a a reasonable prospect? Um, Thank you, Mr.
1: Senator. That's actually a great question because Thank you, Senator. That's an excellent question. Uh, their exports under AGOA are very small, at least those that are covered by AGOA. Of course, some of their primary product exports aren't covered, such mm-hmm. as cotton. But um, I think one of the ways that we can work with them to improve that record is, in fact, through the Millennium Challenge um, a Compact, which is going to work on improving the supply of electricity for many um, small businesses or agro industry. Uh, The inability to maintain a steady production line because of gaps in electricity coverage is is, is a real impediment to economic growth and to getting those products out to market. So I think that's a a very important contribution that we're making. And uh, we do hope that we'll be able to see an increase in economic Mm -hmm. production generally and hope that that translates as well into products that can be exported to the United States, Mm -hmm. products that are value-added, that U.S. consumers seek, and that help benefit the economy of Benin.
0: Thank you. Thank you. Mr. Gilmore, uh, to what extent does the uh, Togolese military play in domestic politics?
2: Thank you, Senator. Um, the uh, uh, military has played less and less of a role in politics, uh, fortunately, uh, in, in recent years because there's been a process of reform uh, since 2007. Uh, there have been successively uh, uh, successful free and fair elections. Uh, and part of our strategy has been to work with the Togolese military to increase their professional, uh, professional ability, their professionalism, uh, to be able to deploy to peacekeeping missions. And, and they have about 1,000 peacekeepers on deployment right now. Uh, and that's both uh, military and foreign police units uh, uh, that have deployed to, uh, I think they have the largest contingent in Mali right now. Uh, So that has helped a great deal. Uh, And then we've also, our other key area of working with them has been in the maritime area. And they've been a very strong partner in terms of uh, building their capacity to patrol the waters uh, off the coast of Togo. And uh, uh, Togo has become a a kind of safe harbor for the region. And on any given day, there are uh, over 100 ships lying off of uh, Lome waiting to go into the other nearby ports and into Lome itself. Mm Uh, because because the Togolese military has done such a good job of patrolling their waters, uh, and much of that is is uh, thanks to assistance from the United States. We've uh, donated patrol boats, done a quite a bit of training, uh, and if confirmed, I would certainly look uh, forward to to uh, working to intensify that cooperation.
0: Right. Well, thank you. Mr. Hawkins, elections have been postponed now twice uh, in CAR. What's the likelihood that they'll go as scheduled, and if so, does that allow for adequate preparation?
3: Um, an excellent question and, and one that will be determinant in the future of this country. Uh, the uh, electoral process is underway. Um, elections are scheduled in October. There'll be a constitutional referendum followed by presidential elections. Subsequently, in, in November, there'll be legislative elections. That's the plan. Uh, the, the first part of that now is is voter registration. And we've had some fairly promising news Uh, Registration in Bangui is up around – almost 300,000 people have been registered there. And the embassy estimates that approximately 350,000 eligible voters live in in Bangui. So that part of the process is doing well. They're moving out uh, into the provinces now to register voters. Funding remains an issue. Uh, and there is still a, a, a gap of, of about $15 million to pay for the elections. And getting uh, elections preparations out into those provinces, particularly in areas where government control is weak, is going to be an issue. Uh, another issue is the voting of refugees, and, and that is a key element in this because uh, those refugee populations must be brought in and included mm-hmm. Or you won't have elections that will reflect the will of the entirety of the people. Uh, so there's a lot of uh, a lot of issues at stake, but we're, we're there. We're supportive. Um, we've done work. Uh, the U.S. government has done work on uh, the constitutional drafting process, on the electoral code. Uh, we're just putting in two million dollars into electoral uh, education. Uh, so we're hopeful that uh, things will go ahead as planned. Thank you,
0: Mr. Rubenstein. What types of U.S. engagement have been effective in Tunisia? It's one of the Best uh, examples of transitions after the Arab Spring, uh, what have we done that it's worked? Uh,
4: thank you very much, Mr. Chairman, for that question. Um, my sense is that uh, there has been some very effective diplomatic engagement in the first instance, um, particularly to keep all of the um, leading uh, elements of Tunisia's body politic, whether they were secularist, uh, Islamist, or others, uh, working together during some of these very fragile moments of the transition. That involved, I think, some, some very good engagement out in the field at the most senior levels. Of course, uh, we provided resources to ensure that uh, both the legislative and the presidential elections uh, occurred peacefully uh, and in ways which were credible, free, and fair. So I think that engagement was, was very, very effective. I think on the security side, there has been as well. Some very effective engagement. Uh, The Tunisian and U.S. militaries have a long history uh, of working together. That engagement has deepened, not only through joint military commission uh, annual meetings, but also through now a far more robust uh, set of activities, primarily of training and equipping the Tunisians on various capabilities, particularly in the CT area. Uh, so that's going to continue, and I think on the economic side as well, there has been some very effective engagement. We have some, we are providing some technical advice as they tackle some of the key critical economic reforms that need to be um really driven home during this period. Uh, That includes getting a new investment code, banking reform, uh, tax and custom reforms, as well as a public private partnership law. And we have had some really good engagement with technical advisors uh, to get them where they need to be on those fronts.
0: Sounds like a full range. (laughs) Yes, sir. Ms. Alsop, when we spoke in my office, we talked about realistic expectations um, about uh, the situation in Gambia. Uh, One of the issues is trafficking um, and, and uh, what, how can we help uh, in that regard? What impact can we have on government?
5: Well, uh, I'm glad you asked that question, Senator, because uh, we, in fact, are bringing the head of the Gambia's Coordinating Committee on Anti-Trafficking here to the U.S. Uh, for a seminar that's coming up in August on combating uh, trafficking in persons. Uh, we also, through the JTIP office at the State Department, we've also provided some training uh, through UNODC, the UN Office on uh, Drugs and Crime.
0: Well, thank you. Thank you. And uh, with regard to there were prisoners that were released to 100, I believe, uh, a while ago. What do you think prompted that action?
5: Well, I think that um, the, the action was purportedly... Uh, a gesture in honor of the, um, the Eid celebration. However, um, I believe that it, um, it was done uh, primarily to show the world that there, um, that the Gambia uh, is trying to be trying to move towards a greater respect for human rights. At least that's my hope of that that is what it means All right.
0: Well, thank you. We've been joined by Senator Markey. If we seem bleary-eyed. We both arrived uh, uh, yesterday at 3:30 a.m. Having just traveled to Africa, um, and uh, I'm glad to have taken the trip and to be back. And if you want to make any statement or launch into questions, if I may, may.
6: Please thank sh- you, Mr. Chairman. And, uh, and the chairman and I did have a great time in Africa, Ethiopia, and Kenya <coughs> uh, for several days, and uh, and we thank you each for being willing to serve our country uh, in the roles that you are nominated for. Uh, It's a very important continent, uh, and it's just exploding economically. uh, But underneath it, there are many historical tensions, uh, problems that continue to uh, exist. Um, Mr. Rubenstein, I was in Tunisia three years ago. They were just drafting the new constitution. A lot of hope for the country. Uh, It's where the peaceful revolution really began, and uh, it was uh, turned into something that is non-recognizable in other countries. But in Tunisia, I think there's still a commitment to trying to fulfill the original ideal. Can you talk a little bit about that, and what, from your perspective, is the greatest threat uh, to Tunisia being a model that ultimately can be emulated?
4: Uh, Thank you very much, Senator. Uh, I share your optimism regarding, t- t- regarding Tunisia. What I would say, though, is as opposed to a model uh, for the rest of the uh, Middle East, uh, perhaps it's better to think of it as an example. The reason I mention that is because of the very high number of differences between all of these countries in the Middle East, whether going through Arab Spring experiences or not. <clears throat> but certainly to serve as an example where there was political compromise practiced by people of very, very different perspectives. If we think about Nada uh, the, on the Islamist side, all the way through to Nida Tunis on the other side, strongly secular, the fact that uh, those political movements and others have continued through very, very challenging times to work through their differences, reach consensus, and also pass off power, as we saw do in 2014 to the transitional government, concede defeat uh, in the last elections. These are hopeful signs that there is significant buy-in on the part of really all parts of the Tunisia political spectrum to continue on that path of democratic transition. Frankly, I think what, f- what threatens in most are these horrific terrorist attacks. Uh, and that is why uh, the Tunisian security forces do need to be bolstered, they do need our help, and uh, with the generosity uh, of the Congress, uh, I suspect that, that we will be able to bring them a greater security capacity, particularly in the area of border security.
6: Yep, and, and I agree with you. I, I visited uh, Tunisia, Libya, and Egypt in the spring of 2012. They were all drafting their new constitution. They each had a Muslim Brotherhood in each country, and it was pretty clear that each Muslim Brotherhood was different from the other. It's not monolithic, and each one, to a certain extent, has to reflect the history of its own country and be accommodating to it, including the 1953 Constitution that gave equal rights to women in Tunisia. Just can't be overturned overnight in a country, and that's why Tunisia, uh, in my mind, is something that really is is hopeful, but uh, we have to keep our eye on it uh, as well. If I could go to Togo for a second, um, there was just an election. There was a resounding uh, victory. It's been rejected by the opposition. There are accusations of fraud. Um, you just heard the president, uh, Mr. Gilmore, talk about that in Ethiopia before the African Union. Could you talk a little bit about Togo, this election, and how you view um, our ability to work with that government to make sure that it has the kind of uh, credibility uh, that the president was talking about?
2: Well, thank you, Senator. There has been a a process of political reform going on in Togo uh, since uh, 2006 when what they called a global political agreement was negotiated between the opposition and and the government. Uh, And since that time, they've had free and fair elections uh, in several instances, including in April of this year. Uh, And uh, there were uh, questions about uh, the fairness of the election administration beforehand and uh, our ambassador uh, Ambassador Whitehead who's there uh, was very much part of the discussions of, of bringing in the uh, other international observers including the International Organization of the Francophonie uh, to help uh, lend credibility to the administration of the elections uh, so uh, everyone who was there who observed uh, uh, had the, the was the consensus that the elections were indeed free and fair um, the uh, one opposition leader, as you mentioned, has, uh, has rejected the results. But fortunately, uh, since the, uh, uh, the election, uh, things have been peaceful. Uh, so people have not come out in the street to protest. Um, and, and I think uh, we, we still can make progress certainly in the issue of term limits, uh, which of course the President talked about uh, in his speech in Ethiopia. And, um, and, and in fact, there have, term limits have been on the agenda in Togo for several years. And, and there were negotiations uh, as recently as last year between the government and the opposition about the modalities of how they might work that out. Uh, and in fact, in the, in, in the legislature <coughs> last year, there was uh, um, legislation introduced uh, but did not pass. Uh, so the government and the opposition were not able to come to agreement on kind of the implementation of how term limits would, could work. Um, I'm told that term are still on the agenda and that the president is willing to talk about this and that the opposition is, of course, very much engaged in the question. Uh, so I uh, would look forward to, if confirmed, to, to continue to facilitate that dialogue as Ambassador Whitehead has done. Okay, if I could go to Gambia
6: for a second and talk a little bit about that tension that exists between the United States and the Gambian government over democracy uh, and its operation in Gambia. Could you talk a little bit about that? Uh, Ms. Alsop, so we can get your perspective. Uh,
5: Thank you, Senator, um, for that question. Um, Yes, there is a very real uh, tension uh, between the U.S. uh, and the Gambia regarding democracy and human rights. Um, If confirmed, uh, that would be one of my priorities to establish a dialogue. Um, I believe that it's important that we engage Um, I don't think that changes can be made overnight, but I think it's important that we continue to emphasize uh, the importance of democratic principles, the importance of respect for human rights, uh, particularly with uh, regard to uh, arrests. There have been many arbitrary arrests. We were pleased with the release of the prisoners recently. Uh, many of them were the family members of people who had been involved in the December uh, 30th coup attempt. Um, so uh, we were very pleased that they had been released. Um, <coughs> however, it is uh, something that it would be ongoing. Um, we have had a good relationship now uh, with the foreign minister, uh, someone whom I had met with frequently when I was in the Gambia before. Uh, but I think we need to have that kind of dialogue that we have with her at all levels of the government. And that would be my top priority to, to establish that dialogue.
6: Thank you. thank you so much. Thank all of you. Thank you, Mr. Chairman. Thank you. Senator Murphy. Uh,
7: thank you very much, Mr. Chairman. Uh, thank you all for uh, being uh, with us uh, here today. Um, uh, Mr. Hawkins, I just wanted to talk about uh, what you've learned so far in your preparation for this post as to the effect of US spending and US aid uh, in CAR. I'm I, I trying to sort of figure out what the number is. Looks to me around 70 million or so heavily in humanitarian aid and really small amounts of money being spent on this election. I think we've got less than a um, million dollars in electoral support. What's your sense of? Um, what we've been able to leverage with the amount of money that we're spending there and um, what you've heard from folks in terms of recommendations about uh, where we might need to spend more in order to get a bigger bang for our buck.
3: Thank you, Senator. I appreciate that question. Um, I think you have to break our assistance down a bit, Uh, and the overall number in the last two years is quite large. It's about $828 million. A lot of that is for assistance for refugees and internally displaced people. And they estimate that about 2.7 million people in CAR need some sort of assistance. That's over half the population of the country. And so this year alone, we'll be providing about $101 million in that area. Uh, Another big ticket item is our support to MINUSCA, to the UN peacekeeping operation, our, our assessed contributions. And I think for the last a little bit over a year. Uh, that's run at, at about 452 million dollars. So those are those are big and very impactful and very important contributions that we've made. Um, in some other areas, the numbers are smaller, but still important. Uh, one area that we're looking at very closely is the justice sector, uh, and uh, the INL bureau in the State Department is uh, uh, has about 25 million dollars to help. Uh, reestablished the justice system in that country and in, in a place that has had such uh, dreadful you know, occurrences and people's rights abused in such a, uh, an awful way. Um, Providing people an outlet, a justice outlet is, is hugely important and, and I, that's been impactful and I, the courts have started working in Bangui at least and the first session they, they they went through a number of cases. We're also providing assistance for victims of sexual abuse, which in that conflict context is very important. Some of the assessments or the contributions in other areas are smaller and the electoral area is certainly one. that that requires attention of the international community. And the shortfall there is pretty significant. As I mentioned earlier, it's about $15 million. And and that's an immediate need because those elections are are taking place in a few months if they hold to the schedule. So that certainly is is something that we'll need to look at more closely. Uh, And we're not alone on this, of course. Uh, There is an international coalition uh, of willing partners that have contributed in various ways. The international contact group for, for CAR just met in Addis uh, on the 27th, and we were represented there. And uh, a number of countries in the AU and others uh, were looking at those issues. But there is a lot to do, and I, I'm very proud of the U.S. contribution so far. And if confirmed, I look, I look forward to uh, overseeing those programs, ensuring that they are operated appropriately, um, and making the, the best case possible that we have the resources we need to move this, this forward. Well,
7: having if that's true, having spent eight hundred million dollars there, it would seem a shame if we relatively nickel and dimed them such that they couldn't run and uh, appropriately funded election. Um, Mr. Uh, Rubenstein, um, I was with a big delegation um, in uh, Tunisia uh, earlier in the year and I wanted to ask you a couple of questions in that context. Um, On a bipartisan basis, we were there and made a commitment to do everything that Tunisia needed in order to continue uh, on its democratic path. Um, And then as a member of the Appropriations Committee, uh, we just voted for a foreign aid budget that did not fund the president's request uh, for Tunisia. Um, uh, something that, uh, from what I understand, um, the Tunisians have noticed. Uh, uh, there seems to be a, um, uh, a separation between our, our rhetoric uh, and then what we're able to deliver. There's there's some vague language in the appropriations bill that we're gonna try to find the money somewhere else. But um, is, uh, is this going to be a, an issue for you? Can we? Uh, Fulfill the commitments that we've made either formally or informally if we don't uh, Ultimately fund the number that the president has requested
4: Thank you very much senator for that question Uh, My sense is that the increases that are in the administration's request for FY16 are very well grounded uh, and they reflect some very serious needs uh, not only in the uh, security area, where it's plainly obvious that Tunisia is facing some extremely serious threats with these two major attacks, but also in the economic reform and the democracy, governance, and rights areas. And frankly, if those two areas don't keep up in some way with the security side of the relationship, that could get out of whack, and I think that is a problem. So I do sense that we have. Uh, made those rhetorical commitments. Tunisia is counting on our support as well as that of other countries. Thankfully, we do have other countries who are in the mix. Of course, they're getting support from the IMF and the World Bank and others, but I think they are primarily looking to the United States to meet these needs at this time and to ensure that they stay on the path. Particularly, I would add, on the side of giving them the fiscal space so that they can make these very difficult economic reforms, particularly reforming state-owned banks um, investment, tax, customs codes. These are gonna entail some, some real uh, choices and probably some winners and losers, and it will be important for us to provide that fiscal space for them.
7: Uh, I wanted to ask you one more question drawing on your long experience in the region. Um, you know, I tend to think that the way in which we think of the region is far too black and white. There's not really friends and enemies, there's degrees of friends and degrees of enemies or adversaries, whatever you wanna call them. Um, and um, we had a meeting with a cross-section of uh, opposition leadership while we were there that um, included Anada, included uh, Rashid Ghanoushi, Uh And actually some members of our delegation chose not to take part in that meeting uh, because they didn't want to be associated with a member of an Islamist party. Um, so uh, just talk to me about how the United States um, um, deals with uh, specifically a group like Enada, but the general phenomenon of Islamist parties who can't be completely excluded from uh, political coalitions, but often you know, have values that are completely antithetical to the, those that we wish were the core of these emerging democracies. So maybe speak to it specifically with respect to uh, Enada, but I'm sure you, you may have thoughts in a broader sense from your experience in the region.
4: Uh, Senator, I I think you properly identified the key factor, and that is, uh, is an Islamist movement both an important part of the national political fabric and social fabric of a country? And secondarily, are they playing by the rules? Those are two indicators that at least I have looked to, and if confirmed, I would look to uh, in uh, in Tunisia to see if they are continuing to um, do what they have done so far, which is to participate fully and constructively in political life there, to engage in compromise, to be supportive of the reforms that the country needs, and in fact, they have been very supportive. They have formed key coalitions to get things done with Tunis and other parties, and that is something I think um, should be, uh, frankly, um, uh, strengthened uh, as, far, as far as other movements in other uh, parts of the region. Uh, I think y- you made an excellent point. Uh, they do need to be looked at in terms of their commitments to representative to democracy and whether they want to be a good actor uh, a constructive actor and know how to turn over power to others when appropriate, when the citizens have voted. in On those um, indices or indicators, uh, and NADA has done very well. And certainly I think it's been entirely appropriate that we engage with them as we do with other uh, Tunisian political parties and movements.
0: Thank you, and then Chairman, or Senator Markey had to follow-up. And yeah, I just
6: have, have a couple of questions for you, Mr. Hawkins. Um, the Central African um, <coughs> Republic has historically not really had religious tensions, but they seem to have broken out. Could you talk a little bit about how out of character it is in the history of the country, and what is going on right now in terms of those new ethnic and religious tensions being uh, activated?
3: Well, thank you very much, Senator. Uh, the the origins of the, the current cycle of conflict in CR are complicated, and there are many different elements to that. There are regional and uh, economic, uh, ethnic tensions that all play into this. Um, unfortunately, as we went in from late 2012, 2013, some of these tensions took on, as you noted, sir, uh, an increasingly sectarian flavor, um, and I think that is a, a cause of real concern. And that has been one area of emphasis for us uh, on the policy side and on the assistance side, focusing again on reconciliation and and, um, bringing people together after this incredibly divisive period in their history. Uh, We're spending about, uh, this year and last, about uh, $15 million on reconciliation programs. Um, And given my experience in, in Nigeria, where we did a lot of interfaith work, working with uh, evangelical Christians and 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 Muslim uh, clerics, uh, bringing those people together is so important to creating a national identity, and an inclusive national identity, and if confirmed, that will be one of my priorities as, as ambassador there.
6: Can you talk a little bit about the role of conflict diamonds in the Central African Republic right
3: now? Um, hugely important. Uh, one of the major interest, industries of the of the country, and again, this is a a, a country that has been blessed um, with very rich resources, and and is yet at the bottom of every in, in indicator for for economic growth. And, and Diamonds play a key part now in fueling conflict, uh, because uh, many of the 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 bad actors in in CAR are, are sitting on diamond resources, um, and diamonds will play an absolutely crucial role. In uh, getting this country out of this conflict, because that will be one of the main sources of revenue. I, I was quite surprised in, in studying for, for uh, preparation for, for taking on this assignment, If have confirmed that something like 100,000 people uh, in a country of 5 million depend on the diamond industry in, in, in CAR. So it has a huge effect. Um, the focus internationally has been on the Kimberley process, and that uh, coalition of of, country, of producing and purchasing countries um, has suspended CER since 2013. And we're now looking very closely, the Kimberley process is looking very closely at ways that those parts of the diamond industry that are now increasingly under the international control or under state control can be brought into the system and that maybe diamonds can be used to fund good things, to fund the government, to fund uh, uh, support for the people as opposed to f- funding conflict. It's a good luck to all of you on your
6: missions, and uh, thank you, Mr. Chairman.
0: Well, thank you, Senator Markey, and I want to thank all of you uh, for being here. I appreciated meeting meeting you all in my office, and uh, I wish you all the best. Certainly, our country relies on your professionalism and your expertise and your willingness to serve, and also to your families. Uh, I want to express appreciation for the sacrifices that they all make in their own way, and I think one of these is an unaccompanied post, um, and uh, to, uh, to Annie and Max and Alex, it's particular sacrifices in that regard. Uh, but for all of you, I know there are a lot of, uh, uh, a lot of sacrifices that are made, and I uh, just want you to know that this committee and the, and the Senate and the Congress uh, appreciates that. So thank you for your service, thank you for what you're doing, and we look forward to moving this process along with your nominations. Thanks. This uh, meeting is adjourned. I should say that I I neglected to say the meeting record will stay open uh, for a couple of days till Friday. And so if anything needs to be submitted until then, it'll be included in the record. Thank you much. This meeting is adjourned.